Well, as Sophia talked about, we're in this um, series on in ne- going through the book of Nehemiah, and we've dropped in on this idea of resilience. Um, today, actually, what's going to happen is as we're talking about this idea of resilience, we're going to come around some of the, th- the thoughts that Pastor Adrian talked about last week. So this is um, kind of an addendum to last week's sermon. If you weren't here, that's okay. Um, you're going to pick it up as we go. But this really kind of comes around what's happened because this idea of resiliency, especially resiliency in the Christian life, is very difficult. And the reason it's difficult is because the essential call on the life of a Christian is to live a life that's not about yourself. The essential call of the life of a Christian is to live a life that's not about yourself. And the reason that's so difficult is because our natural tendency is to live a life about us and the people we care about most. But Jesus' call was different. His call was basically in Philippians chapter 2. That every room that you walk into, you walk into thinking the people around you are better than you. That you walk into and every person that you see and lock eyeball to eyeball with. He says, I want you to consider not just your own interest, but the interest of others. I want you to consider everybody better than yourself. And he, last week, Pastor Adrian talked about this idea of justice. How it should move us emotionally, how it should move us mentally, and how that should cause a sense that moves us physically. But the difficult part about that is that requires me to push, chapter two, we're in chapter five today, okay? So that requires me to push on, that requires me to push in a way that over an extended period of time is not about myself. And again, our tendency is always to draw back to ourself. And here's how I know this. Because I've been in the seat that you've been in and we are all in it last week together. Where you hear someone talk about this idea of loving, of serving, of prioritizing the marginalized, the vulnerable, ahead of yourself, of pushing the thoughts and the ideas that I'm going to stand up for the people who can't stand up for themselves or for the people whose perhaps their voice does not carry as much weight. We've heard it and we've been moved by it. And even for some of us for a season, we've been mobilized by it. But do we have the sense of sustainable immediacy, of sustainable resiliency that we are pushing in the same direction 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 25 years from now. Because what's undeniable about Nehemiah is this was not an event. This was a prolonged lifestyle. We've all been there, right? And that sounds phenomenal. In most sermons, if we're being honest, on a good one, it lasts till like Tuesday, right? For a lot of us, to be honest, it lasts till somebody cuts us off in the parking lot and we're like, man, I was sanctified. My process of sanctification just got disrupted. This is your fault. You know, could you not back out, learn how to freaking drive? We understand you're from South Florida and you're from Boca and you drive a white Lexus. Cool, whatever, right? But like, learn how to drive people, right? Like, like, it doesn't last long because what happens is all of a sudden the world around us turns into chaos. Something happens at work. Something happens at school. Something happens with your roommate. Something happens with your marriage. Something happens with your boss. Something happens with your direct report. Something happens And all of a sudden we're distracted and this momentum that we had gets disrupted. And so we're left to go to what's the next Sunday, what's the next Sunday, what's the next Sunday. So here's what I want to talk about today. What we are to do is simply a byproduct of why. What we are to do, this idea of justice, resiliency, is the outcome of a deeper underlying frame of reference. So we're actually going to go back and we're going to see the what 
but we're going to juxtapose it with the why. And here's my hope at the end of today. That no one walks out the door without at least understanding the mindset we are to have to live a life of sustained, resilient, immediacy for the kingdom of God and the empowerment of the people around us. If you've got your Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah is basically this history of what happened in the city of Jerusalem. The, the brief overview of what's going down in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah um, is going back to, to Jerusalem specifically, this kind of nation of Judah. Uh, if you remember from your history class, which some of you do and some of you, man, I slept straight through that. Um, for a while, there was this world superpower. The world superpower uh, was the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came in, and, and, and they just kind of decimated everybody. But on the tail end of the Babylonians, the, the Persians came into the world superpower. And as the Persians were the world superpower, the Persians basically said for everyone who had been exiled in the Babylon export, because the Babylonians would basically come into a town, they would take all the people, so there wouldn't be further uprising, they would just spread them. Because you can't really uprise if you're not around people to uprise with. And so they would spread them all out. And so King Cyrus came in and basically said, hey, you can all go back home. And some people did, but some of the, the people from Judah or Jerusalem didn't because they didn't have the ties to the homeland. So approximately 100 years after the Babylonian exile, um, Nehemiah hears that the walls of his homeland are in ruin. It breaks his heart. He's moved to talk to the king. As he talks to the king, he basically, out of the providence of God, which is a wildly unlikely story, he has a conversation, and the king says, not only can you go, not only can you have time off from work, but I will, in fact, pay for this wall. The wall was the military border and the first line of defense around a country or around a city that had historically been rebellious to any other warring nation or overlording nation over them. And so Nehemiah goes to rebuild this wall. Well, as he's going there, they're rebuilding, they're rebuilding, they say some opposition from the outsiders. But chapter five, verse one, we read about some opposition that's happening from the insiders. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, I'm just, I don't know your marriage, but I just want to say this. Like, like, I can complain, right, or I can have some problems and some issues, but as soon as it becomes a problem that my wife's like, hey, you need to do something about this, I'm like, dang, I need to do something about this, you know? And so I think he's like, hey, like it was bad for us, but our wives started saying something, so we're like, we really got to put some action to this. This is not going to go well for our covenantal relationship. For these... Or for they were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, three different you know, kind of problems here, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. We're no different. We're just as good as them. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now what was the common Jewish practice was that you could lend people things. But if it was to meet the necessities of life, you could collateralize it with some stuff, but the reality was is you could not charge interest. They just paid you back when they could as they could. 
That you can charge other nations interest. And in fact, you can charge interest on something if they're trying to go from something to something better, right? If like, if you have a pretty sweet car, but you're wanting a sweeter car, right? If you have an F-250, but you're like, yo, that new Bronco's coming out and daddy needs to drive one of those, right? And so like, like you can charge interest on that. But if it's to stay alive, nation of Israel, God would say, you should not charge interest on one another. But they were doing it. And what was infuriating to Nehemiah was this. This was not only difficult, this was counterproductive to the previous sacrifice that Nehemiah had made. Verse 6, it picks up. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now, this is important because last week, Pastor Adrian asked this question. Are we moved emotionally when we see injustice? Are we moved emotionally when we see injustice? But here's the reality of Nehemiah. He wasn't moved emotionally simply because he saw injustice. He had actively been pushing towards the empowerment of the people that were around him. And this was counterproductive by his own people. Here's what I mean by that. He said, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly. It's kind of like he was like, okay, I'm going to tell you guys. But I know you're probably not going to listen. So I'm just going to get everybody together. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. This is important because before this, this was not Nehemiah's first push towards helping. It wasn't his first push towards the wall. Nehemiah said, hey, 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 you guys got to look at what's been happening here. And what had happened was as the nation, was as Israel, as Judah, as Jerusalem, which are all kind of interchangeable, as they had become indebted to other nations who were charging them interest, they would be sold and they would be picked off towards slavery. This sense of, of debt slavery and what Nehemiah did is Nehemiah was active in this battle. He was active in the pushing against that. And so Nehemiah had self-funded the, the freedom of lots of folks And so Nehemiah begins this chapter not with the idea of I'm angered about what I see, but I have been proactively working towards this idea of liberation. I have been actively working towards the empowerment and the help of the people around me. And so when he sees this, this is not him all of a sudden saying, man, this is, I, I saw this and I was outraged. This is as if Nehemiah's, they're building a house and Nehemiah's on top of the roof. And he's trying to put the roof on the house and he's got the tar paper rolled out and he's starting to nail in shingles. And Nehemiah looks down and his own crew is taking out the studs, taking out the stringers, taking out the framing of the house. And he's looking at it saying, yo, this house is about to fall. Like I'm angry, not just because of what's happening, but because what is happening is from our own camp and they are actively working against what we have been working towards. We're sabotaging ourselves. Now I say that to simply say this. This begins to build the idea of the cumulative, intentional, extended push towards the empowerment and the service of the people around him. So Nehemiah says, we've been given for this. We've been sacrificing this. This has cost us. He said... We, as far as we have a, are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell 
your brothers that they may be sold to us. Like, like you got to get this. We're having a problem here. You're selling them. We're just going to have to go back and buy them back. This is ridiculous. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Now, again, this is how you wish every single debate that you ever get into goes, right? Like, this is how, by the way, the debate that you have in your mind before you actually have the conversation goes, right? That they, like, you said something, and then they said something, and then you said something, and they were like, wow. He is so smart. She is so smart. Are you kidding me? I am so dumb. I will never do it again, right? This is how we picture it going. But it actually happens. And we're going to talk about that why in a second. More importantly, he says, they were silent, could not find a word. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. And that's obvious. But what he's about to say, as he's kind of, you know, publicly reprimanding the people, the nobles, the officials, the ones in power, what he's about to say does not simply tell us what happened, but why. Nehemiah, he kind of cracks the window and says, hey, 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 if you're wondering how I'm able to do this, in fact, we're going to read in a couple of verses that he did this for a long, long, long time. If you're wondering how I do this, here is the why, here is the sustainability factor that gives me the energy, the power, the fuel to be able to accomplish this and push. The thing you are doing is not good. So ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, our enemies? See, here's what Nehemiah knew. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord drove Nehemiah to act in alignment with the, with the right understanding of who God is. Let me say that a different way. Who God is. Or how we view God should drive us to do what God says to do. If we see who God is, we will do as God says. If we see who God is, we will do as God says. Here's how this makes sense, right? Because God in, in the Bible is described a lot of different ways. One of the more complex ways is, is saying the fear of God, the fear of God, that we ought to have the fear of God. And when you talk about the fear of God, for me, I've kind of found it to be one of those... Um, it's like a building a sandcastle at the beach too close to the, to the water line. If, you, if you're catching my drift, get it, drift, dad joke. Um, it's kind of like, so you're like, oh, I get that, okay. It's like once you start to make progress, you come out the next day and it just kind of feels like it's gone. You're like, okay, I thought I had it and I'm, I'm wrestling with it and I'm trying to understand this. But the idea behind this is that it's core kind of irreducible minimum. It's this immense view of God. It's this view of God that says, God, you are so much bigger, greater. You have so much more grandeur. You have so much more glory. You have so much more power. You have so much more perfection. You are the infinite God, and I am not. And God, because I realize that you are God, I am not. Because I realize you are infinite, and I am not. God, I trust you above I trust me trusting myself. Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, it talks about this. It says, he, he sits enthroned above the circles of the earth. And his people, us, we're like grasshoppers. 
Now, we like to compare our grasshopperness to other people's grasshopperness. We're like, yo, but I'm a yoked grasshopper, right? Or like, yeah, but I'm a grasshopper and look at all like the crickets I've got to eat, right? Like, or, or like, here's all my grasshopperness. But I feel like God's looking down saying, no, 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 no. Like, you're grasshoppers. Can you imagine a grasshopper trying to define the complexity of what happens when you wake up to your alarm clock and you make coffee in the morning? Like, that would be baffling to a grasshopper. Well, it is. Hopefully, you don't have grasshoppers watching you do that. But, right, right if they try to understand this, the finite, simple understanding of the grasshopper compared to the complexity just of modern technology is so fundamentally incompatible that they can never explain it. Yet, we don't simply try to explain it to God. We think we know better than God in the way that we ultimately oftentimes end up as Jesus followers negotiating with God. I know. I know I shouldn't live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. And God, I understand that. I'm just going to say what some of you guys said, and I think this is ridiculous, and I'll tell you why in a second. But, you know, but, but, you know gosh, i got to test drive the car before I you know, buy it. And, and I just want to say, if you ever think you're going to test drive my daughter, I will literally punch you in the face, okay? I want you to know on behalf of all the fathers in here, these hands are rated E for everybody, okay? Like, like just try, right? Because that's so incredibly you know, degrading, disrespectful, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the reality is, the reality is so simple. It's that, it's that what I'm saying at the core is, God, I know that you know that, 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 that I think you know better, but I think that I know the wisest solution, the most effective solution, the most efficient solution and, and methodological approach to get to this outcome, which is a happy marriage. And so God, this is how I'm going to operate. I know I should be generous as a person, but God, I, I, I don't make that much money, and so I'm not going to really be that generous. And yet Jesus looked at, at everybody who was given this offering one day at the temple, and he saw this one lady who, who gave out of her poverty, and he said, shh, shh that's it. That's it. It has nothing to do with how much. It has nothing to do with your quantity. It has nothing to do with the quantity that you have. It has everything to do with the heart that you have. But yeah, we know that that's, that's tough and things are going to be tight. And Jesus said, yep, exactly. Like we know what we ought to do. And if you were to unpack any idea, any area that we ultimately don't do what God says at its core, it's that we either think we know better than God or that we think that we won't have to face the consequences of it. It's just one of those two things and it's just that simple. And the fear of God says, God, I know you're bigger than me and God, at the end of the day, I know ultimately you are just we like to take fears if it's like not being scared. Like we should be literally terrified of God. But so exceptionally and extremely blessed that we get to have him as our heavenly father. We like to say it's not fear. <laughs> and one day Jesus was saying, okay, so you're scared of the people around you. Like just as a heads up. <clears throat> Don't be scared of the body or someone who can destroy the body. Be afraid of the one who can destroy your body and your soul. Here's the reality for Nehemiah. We're going to come back to this in a second. Who God is should drive us to do as God says. Because we simply trust him 
and believe him more than ourselves. So this is what happened. He says, moreover, verse 10, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. And that was common. That was okay. But let us abandon the exacting of interest. So return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money and grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah is, is, is very wise. He knows that we need to trust but verify in this particular category because he's heard them said before. So he said, and I called all the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said... So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Now here is the sustainability factor of Nehemiah. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be governor in the land, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king. And in case you were wondering, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. To contrast this, the governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver, and even their servants lorded it over the people. In other words, he's saying, hey, this was, this was not me exacting something I shouldn't have exacted. This was what the system that we had created, this was what we understood it to be. I was allowed to eat this. But for 12 years, for 12 years, in fact, the entire time that Nehemiah was governor, he said, I did not put myself first. I did not put myself first. I did not put myself first. First, And if we're being honest, like most of us are not putting ourselves first in, in openly, in, in, in a way that we are intentionally pursuing the denial of self to the help of others. We would love to do that for a full calendar week, let alone a month, let alone a quarter, let alone a year, let alone a decade. Nehemiah says, yeah, I could have taken it. And I had the right to, just like every other governor. But you know what Nehemiah had? You know what Nehemiah had that made the difference, I think, in his conversation? Why they had nothing to say back to him. He had the same thing that I hope you have. And he had the same thing that every single person that you listen to that you don't have to. In other words, the people who are around you who do not have an official position in your life, but you listen to what they say simply because of, that, of who they are. You know what they have? Moral authority. Moral authority. You see how they talk, and you see how they walk, and there is no duplicity between them. You see what they say, and you see what they do, and you think, <clears throat> I don't even know if I believe like you, but I want to listen to you because I hear what you say, and I see how you live, and they are in such parallel, tandem, concert with one another that, that I just simply, I want to hear your wisdom. 
Isn't this true? If you're here and in, in, in the reality of your life is that you're trying to explore faith as an adult and you're kind of coming back to this idea of Jesus, God, Bible, church, all that kind of stuff, my guess is somewhere along in your story, this was the problem. You saw Christians who said one thing, talked one thing, and walked something else. You saw that they did not live in parallel. They lived in such a way that you couldn't make sense. Because the reality was, they wanted you to believe something that was evident by their lives that they didn't believe it. Like, isn't this true? Like, you're, like you're, maybe you're here and you're like, thank God, literally thank God, somebody's finally saying this out loud. Because perhaps for your entire life, this has been the problem. They wanted you to believe something that you looked at life and you said, <laughs> like, you don't even believe that. So you want me to believe that? In fact, isn't this also true? A lot of times this is the projection of Christians. I want that you don't believe the same thing as me. I want you to walk and I want to hold you to the standard that you're going to walk in a way that I don't even walk myself. But Nehemiah, over an extended period of time, walked like he taught and there was no duplicity about him. And here, again, is why. But I did not do so. I did not lord it over them. I did not take it for myself. Because of the fear of God. Because I was so enamored in awe and reverence by who God is, I will do and gladly do whatever God says. Now here's what I think is interesting. And this is, this is, so sometimes when I'm thinking about stuff, I know my brain tends to work a little bit differently. By differently, I mean ADHD. And so I have a, um, I have a friend of mine who, he, he loves, you know, theology and kind of nerds out over that stuff. So I'm like, yo, I got an illustration. I think it makes sense, but it's also, it either is perfect or heretical, and I'm not really sure. So let me just run this by. He was like, yeah, it's somewhere on the line, okay? So let me just test this out, and we're recording it. So, you know, Jesus, help me. All right, so the interesting thing about this, this dynamic, this dynamic that God is so much bigger, God is so much more important, God is so much preeminent in the universe than us that we would in all things and all ways defer to him. Here's this connection. If you've ever been to a wedding, you have seen a incredibly simplistic, minimalistic dichotomy of this working out in real time. Because here's what you know on wedding day. The most important person in the place is the bride. And it's not close. Like grooms, like, you're there, right? But if, but if you had an option to make somebody mad, at all turns and bit. I don't know, Ben. This, this illustration might have gone the wrong way, to be just real frank with that. I don't know, God. All right, let me, okay, pray. You know, it's like Nehemiah, he like said a prayer real quick. <laughs> like I'm literally trying to be like, okay, what does that mean right now? <clears throat> but I'm gonna keep going with it. And you just make that happen again, okay, God, if, you, if that's what you want. But anyways, um, <clears throat> 
It's like this understanding that like, like on the wedding day, the most important person in the room is the bride and it's not even close. It's not even close. Like on the wedding day, this is why when the bride walks in, everybody stands up. This is why when the bride walks in and, and, and she's, you know, walking down the aisle, especially like no one's walking down beside the bride because the day is not about them. I don't know anybody who's like, you've been kind of late to the funeral or not the funeral. Eesh, this is really going the right hand, like taking a turn on me. <laughs> you get what I'm saying though, right? Like, like, <clears throat> like you walk into this place and and like no one's like fist bumping the bride on the way down the aisle because it is all about her. She is the most important person in the room on this day. And if at some point during the reception, the bride comes up to you and she's like, yo, I'm, I'm super thirsty. Can you get me a drink of water? I'm like, yes, absolutely. I'm like pushing chairs out of the way, right? Like, hey, the bride needs something. Part the Red Sea, right? Like, because I need to get her something because she is the most important person right now. In a normal day, you guys know I'm bivocational pastor, so I run a company on the, my, you know, as my full-time job, and I pastor a church as my full-time job, and I do have two full-time jobs, right? But, so that makes me busy. It makes my schedule really cloudy and, and, and difficult to kind of you know, make space for sometimes. And there might be somebody who on a normal day-to-day basis, you know, it, it would be a scheduling thing. It might take a couple weeks to schedule something that we could spend some time together. But on the wedding day, I'm hoping that she has a couple of seconds to come around to my table so I can say, man, you look beautiful. Congratulations. That is the smallest picture of the fact that we have an infinite God who is so infinitely more important than us, bigger than us, greater than us. That the view of who he is, the importance that he has, the the weight of the glory and the grandeur and the incomprehensible power that he has should drive us to say, yes. If you want me to love these people, yes. If you want me to deny myself, yes. Because I know you, I trust you, I hear what you have said, and so I'm going to do it because my view of you, God, I view you in such a way that I'm going to live in such a way. My view of who he is drives me to do as I say. The problem is, is for many of us, we're trying to do as God says without first seeing who God is which creates an unsustainable loop because we're trying to do it on our own power. And we, at the end of the day, will default to ourself. So here's how Nehemiah ended this. I also preserved the work on the wall Great leadership. He was not just saying, you guys do it, I'm going to do it. And we acquired no land, which, by the way, has how people build power. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. There wasn't this separation, this hierarchy. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, officials, besides those who came to us from the other nations that were around us. So I'd have these people over for dinner. Now, what was prepared... At my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the, on the people. So God, remember my good, oh my God, and all that I have done for these people. Nehemiah would step back, step back and simply say this. And the things that I did for other people, I even just bankrolled myself. I didn't, not only did I not 
leverage the tax, leverage the governor's tax. Not only did my people not, we decided we weren't going to acquire any land because we weren't interested in the power dynamic. We were interested in helping the people around us. We weren't interested in acquiring. We were interested in empowering. We were interested in helping in every way, shape, and form. And in fact, if it meant not only me not getting, but I was actually going to pay for, then that's what we were willing to do. And we did this for years and years and years and years. Let me just ask you this. This is what I was thinking about as I was thinking, okay, God, so what does this actually functionally look like? Can you imagine the reputation of the church? Like, can you imagine a church who is oftentimes, not our church, hopefully, but the church more globally, or the church at least locally in our city, can you imagine if the church who is oftentimes defined more by what they believe than what they do, and they're defined more by the hypocrisy than the way that they live out their faith in congruence with their beliefs, can you imagine a church when we're all together, if everybody showed up at the same time, approximately 1,000 folks? Can you imagine 1,000 people living in the same city and for over a decade saying, we are not going to do for ourselves, we are going to do for others because that's what God is to us. Because at the core of it, that's what God did for us. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or leveraged. Instead, he made himself a servant and eventually died on a cross. That we not only have what Nehemiah had, which is the fear and the reverence of God, but we have the example and the experience of Jesus. Who saw us in our sinfulness, but did not pull the God card. Instead, came down and served us, died for us, because we fundamentally in our sinful selves are incompatible with the holy God. And God knew that. And said, here, let me not expect you, but let me serve you. And the ultimate version of service in sending his son to die on the cross for us. And can you imagine the reputation of a church that did that? It's a beautiful book by Eugene Peterson that I think captures this idea. It's called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Can you imagine a church, a group of people who didn't just do this for a week, didn't just do it for a quarter, not just a year, but for over a decade, said, you first, you first, you first. The resiliency that God has called us to is not accomplished by our decision to accomplish it, but our view of who God is drives us to what God says. So I'll end it with this simple question. And the idea of, so what do I do with all this? Here's all I want you to do. Have the intellectual honesty to ask yourself this simple question. Does my view of who God is drive me to do as God says? Does my view of who God is drive me to do as God says? You cannot start the journey towards understanding and seeing God without first acknowledging where you are. So does your view of who God is drive you to do as God says? And I'm praying that as God helps us to see who he is, have the fear of God, the awe of God, that helps us understand, frankly, the grace of God. As we see who he is, 
We will do as he says. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that you not only gave us the example of Nehemiah, you gave us the example of your son, who while we were still sinners, you died for us. Though we cannot moral our way into your good graces, we can't be good enough people Because our imperfection will never be compatible with your perfection. You stepped out of eternity and out of the corridors of heaven onto planet earth and died for us. And now we simply live in a reflection of that. That who you are, God, drives us to do as you say. I pray that you will give each and every one of us long obedience in the same direction. A lifetime of pushing and loving, and serving, and denying ourselves. But not as we decide to. I pray that we will all have the strength and the courage to simply ask the question, does my view of who God is drive me to do as God says? And as we wrestle with that thought and wrestle with that question, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what to do with it and the courage to do it. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.